it's like the canary in the coal mine. I mean, when the canary goes down and is having trouble functioning uh, in the mine, it's not, oh my gosh, get that, let's get stronger, tougher canaries, you know, and make them more resilient so they can, they can take any environment, you know, no matter what the toxic things are. Burnout is a problem in healthcare. It's a problem for individuals, those who experience it and decide to leave a career that they formerly loved. But it's also a problem for our healthcare system. Burnout is associated with an increase in medical errors, in poor quality of care. Fundamentally, it's a patient safety issue. But unlike many other patient safety issues, the way we tend to think about it and to try and prevent burnout is at the individual, not the system's level. You'll all have seen the advice on how to improve your own resilience through mindfulness or some other forms of self-care. However, the authors of a new analysis on bmj.com urge us to start treating burnout as a systems issue. I'm Duncan Jarvis, multimedia editor for the BMJ, and in this podcast I talk to two of the authors of that analysis about how we can actually start to spot burnout when it's happening, and what, in the face of many of the external pressures that workers in the NHS or any other healthcare system are under, what can actually be done to try and mitigate burnout. My name is Christina Maslach. I'm a professor of psychology at the University of California, Berkeley. Uh, and I have been doing research on burnout for the past four decades. Great, thank you. And uh, Anthony, could you introduce yourself as well, please? Yes, thanks very much. I'm Anthony Montgomery. I'm a professor of work in organizational psychology at the University of Macedonia in Thessaloniki in Greece. And I've been doing research about burnout specifically related to healthcare professionals, I suppose, for the last 10 years. Mm. And I suppose this is a, an opening question. As Anthony, you said you've focused on, on burnout in healthcare, um, but Christina, you're looking at it more generally. Um, and this article is obviously within a medical journal. That's, that's, that's why we're focusing that on healthcare. But is this a particular healthcare problem or is it something that we see much more broadly uh, across the workforce? Uh, I think we see it in many other places, but certainly uh, from the beginning of the time that I've done work on burnout, health care has always been an important um, venue for all of that. So uh, it's there's certainly been work being done on it for a long time and they've talked about it. Early on, I think, particularly among nursing before um, anybody else. But uh, uh, yeah, but what we're what I have seen over the years is that uh, burnout, uh, at least when I first started doing the research, was uh, something that came up often in a lot of different um, human service, people oriented, caregiving, helping professions, uh, social service professions. So. We would see this um, among social workers, among police officers, among uh, teachers, among um, therapists and counselors, among ministry, among you know a number of different groups. 
And as at first I thought maybe there's something in particular about those kinds of occupations that make this kind of uh, phenomenon more uh, more a risk, more a probability. Uh, but in recent decades, uh, people have been gathering research uh, on this and a lot of other occupations have made the argument that, in fact, there's sort of a, a broader way of looking at it that you can see it uh, in, in a lot of different areas. So uh, it's certainly becoming uh, recognized in a lot more places than where we first began. But certainly health care is one of the big areas in which there's been a, a lot of attention and a lot of concern. I think everybody recognizes that uh, Christina is uh, has been one of the sort of founders or one of the one of the pioneers of burnout research, and I suppose that's the way I came to burnout research about ten or fifteen years ago. And my experience of or my interest in healthcare started way back in uh, the two thousands when I had a job uh, which was not specifically about burnout, but I was looking at, I was collecting data in general hospitals. And when in this job, I was working in Ireland at the time, I had, been, I had an opportunity to visit every general hospital in Ireland. And one of the things I started to observe when I visited these hospitals was the way in which staff interacted with each other. And um, as I was noticing what was going on in these particular general hospitals, I was looking around as a psychologist searching for some ideas or some concepts about stress. Uh, among healthcare professionals, and that's when I sort of bumped into, if you like, the, the really interesting work that Christina had been working on for for a very long time. Mm. So, um, Christina, I mean, this sort of you know, you've you've sort of set us up there saying that this is something that that might be particularly around those sort of people centric services, um, and that kind of begs the question: What is burnout? You know, it seems to be this quite nebulous, multifactorial thing that we, we talk about. So I wonder, do you have a, a, a way that you think about it particularly? Uh, <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, and that has really uh, come about because of um, uh, the work that we've done and sort of uh, ending up uh, on the basis of all of that to come up with a definition. Uh, and what we were finding is that there were at least three as we characterize it, three dimensions of that experience. Uh, so it is multifactorial. I don't think that means it's nebulous. I think it's perhaps a little bit more complex. Mm. But uh, it is the definition that the World Health Organization has adopted and is, is using is in the way they define it. Uh, so the three dimensions have to do with energy depletion or exhaustion, um, uh, not just physical, but also emotional exhaustion. Uh, a second part of it, which for me is sort of the hallmark of burnout, is this feeling of detachment and negative, negativism and cynicism about one's job um, and distancing yourself from it and doing the bare minimum rather than your very best. Uh, really sort of turning off in terms of the emotions, the values, the goals, etc. And then uh, the third aspect of it uh, is that you begin to feel really more negatively about your own professional uh, effectiveness uh, as a worker. You know, I'm not very good at it. Why did I choose this? You know, I maybe I've made a mistake, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So it's those three things in different arrangements or patterns that give us some sense of what's going on with burnout. Now, when you say nebulous, my guess is that 
one of the problems with burnout is that it's not a formal scientific, you know, name of some kind, and it wasn't derived from a theory. It is very much a term that came from the people who are experiencing it. Nobody ever invented that as a as a specific uh, term for that. It was the way people described what is happening to me. And because it is this popular term that has a lot of imagery that goes with it about you know, being on fire and flames and then nothing left but ashes and all the rest of that stuff, that uh, it's something that people gravitate to, they use, but then they use it to mean all kinds of other things as well. So the downside of that, uh, uh, even though the plus side was that you were really listening to what people had to say and using the way they talked about it, and they had found a, a term that meant something to them, um, it's something that people can use in all kinds of other things to mean I'm bored or, you know, I'm not good at this anymore or all kinds of other things. And, they, and that's where I think everybody becomes, oh, no, I know what burnout is and let's let's describe it in a different way. So mm. uh, so it's been helpful, I think, that um, I hope <laughs> that the, the World Health Organization uh, statement about this uh, is, is giving some uh, – greater consistency and uh, sort of a more solid, you know, set of boundaries and, and guidelines as to how we deal with this as that particular kind of phenomenon, that kind of problem. Yeah, so, I mean, as you say, it's a very kind of evocative imagery that the, the name burnout gives to it, and it makes it seem like quite a an acute thing. You know, it's literally someone on fire, but is that the way it actually manifests in, in most people or in the majority of people? Or is it more of a sort of chronic slow burn thing, perhaps, instead? Well, it is a response to chronic uh, stressors. There's no doubt about it. I mean, the thing about uh, burnout, it's not that it's a response to an acute crisis. Oh, my gosh, we have a huge emergency in the hospital. Everybody's got to run and take care of stuff. It's, it's the stuff that happens every day that just is wearing you away to the point where you don't give a damn anymore and you can't do it anymore and you, you know, you're not uh, uh, feeling good at all about you know, how, how your work is going and, and what's happening and, and so forth. So that's an important point about it in terms of response to chronic stressors. Um, in terms of the fire, if you mean that somehow you ought to see people just going crazy and having huge temper tantrums and all the rest of it, that might happen in some cases. But often when people are beginning to go through this, they're withdrawing, they're pulling out, they are, the, you know, the fire is going out inside them. Mm. You know, there's no more of that passion, mm. no more of that motivation. Uh, there's a sense in which, you know, whatever you were feeling good about has, has just died and has gone. And, um, and it's, it's, it's a different, you know, it's, it's that, uh, I guess in terms of the imagery, it's, you know, what you used to have that was driving you, that you mo were motivated, was motivating you, which you cared about, um, has just been extinguished. It hasn't been supported. It hasn't been sustained. It hasn't been, you know, there's not a place here that, that helps us develop and thrive. It, you know, it's just like, shutting us down and, you know, um, uh, pushing us to the point where, you know, we, we can't do this any anymore. And, uh, and when you go into some kind of work where there's an important value, that's why you did this. This is why I am in healthcare. This is why I'm in education. This is why I'm in these other things. 
to help, to serve, to make a difference, you know, to have that extinguished uh, is pretty is pretty strong. Um, yeah. So it seems like, um, you know, there's a lot more talk about burnout now than than there has been uh, in the past. Um, do you think that's, or, or maybe much more, I don't know, people who who seem to be saying that they uh, are are feeling this way, um, is that is that slightly an observer observer effect, or do we know if there has actually been an an increase in in rates of burnout in, in healthcare staff? Um, well, I think Tony can, can talk more about, you know, specifically in healthcare, but I'll make some more general statement. I think there has been more, clearly over, you know, the decades, there has been more and more attention to it. Uh, and so there are more people who talk about it and, you know, recognize it and so forth. So there is a part of that. When I first started doing the research back in the 70s uh, and 80s, um, it was in some professions so stigmatized that nobody would talk about it. I mean, it was, um, and it was only being in an anonymous confidential interview where nothing was going to get out to anybody that they were willing to begin to, you know, describe what was going on and what was happening to them. Uh, and in some cases, there is still that stigma. So it's not like people are going around saying, oh, I'm burned out. They're talking about, yeah, there's a lot of burnout going on in healthcare. Um, and so it's, it's in some ways, I think there's still, for some people, the, the stigma about it. But there's more of a recognition that for whatever reasons, these, you know, this kind of experience is happening and we should take it more seriously. So I think in general, uh, you know, we're talking about uh, how people deal with uh, a workplace that increasingly is out of whack with what human beings, you know, are capable of and are, are you know, um, in, in ways that in, incentivize them and, and reward them. Uh, and so, you know, burnout is a symptom of that kind in, in a way. It's telling you, it's like a flag. It's like a warning sign. It's telling you something is not going well within the larger job environment in which people are working. And um, so the problem becomes we need to be focusing on so what's going on in that job environment and not simply just saying, well, gee, you're not strong enough, you know, go back and get more sleep, take care of yourself. Um, it's really saying it's not about the people are, are struggling and, and, and are stressed out, but why? What is going on around them and what could we do? And that's really the point of you know, the article that we wrote, which is to say, you know, it's all well and good to talk about helping people cope by themselves, but you've got to be, you know, focusing on the job environment. And we need to look at that organization in the system and sort of say, how do we make it a place that is better for people to do their work and really thrive? Mm, absolutely. And we'll get onto that in a second. Uh, but before then, Anthony, do you have any sort of comments on, uh, on healthcare in particular there? Yeah, no, I just, uh, I think I'd agree, obviously, with everything Christina said. And I mean, in many ways, I mean, all my research over the last 10 to 15 years has shown that healthcare professionals, and we, we do discuss this in the article, they engage in what we might call kind of performance protection strategies. So, and they also engage in sometimes a lot of inappropriate self-care. So they are very reluctant to identify themselves as being burnt out. And, you know, they're very reluctant to, to sort of 
see themselves as kind of being kind of weak in the system. So if anything, I think this kind of the, the way in which we're capturing burnout among different healthcare settings now in terms of the research, I think is indicating that we're starting to recognize that, you know, there's, there's potentially an unhealthy kind of relationship between our expectations of healthcare professionals and their actual performance. So if anything, you know, I think that it's, it's not so much that the, the rates are getting very high. I think the more important point is what Christina was saying is that we, you know, we, we have a sort of a, we have a need to focus on if there are healthcare organizations which seem to be reporting levels of burnout, we, we need to be more interested in what is driving those different levels of burnout. And uh, I think we'll probably get into that more with the actual article. <laughs> Well, I was going to say, uh, you know, let, let's talk about that now. What are some of those factors that, that do drive burnout that might be um, on the increase or, or else maybe recognised now that that will affect people in this way? Uh, I just want to, first of all, if I can just put in a little additional note to what was just being said. Of course, about yeah. yeah. Um, one of the problems that I've been seeing, um, and it's it's a frustrating issue, but uh, is that people are focusing on the rates of burnout, like is it 10%, 50%, 80%? And you'll see articles, particularly in healthcare, where the numbers are astronomical and they're, you know, they're saying things like, it, you know, 50% or more of physicians have one or more symptoms of burnout, which means they score high on one of the three dimensions of our research measure, but not on all of them or, you know, and or, or the way they people have done the work using that measure, um, they've come up with numbers that I think overinflate. You know what they're saying. Uh, you know in terms of the of the rates. So um, I would caution people about putting too much weight on it because it gets used and misused in many ways, and it's hard for anybody to sort of try. You know. Uh, control that or try and say to people that's not the way in which you use the measure it's a research measure they're using it as a diagnosis which it was never intended to be as we say in the article um, but I think that um, and and the, the second point that goes with that is that particularly in healthcare that I've noticed you know like with the CEOs of different systems it's like the rate you know the percentage that comes out from when we do our annual survey um, is the holy grail, meaning they're not taking it as a warning sign to look at what is causing the problem. They're just saying, how do we get those scores down? And we'll just keep asking, you know, those questions over and over until the scores go down uh, without really focusing on what are you going to do that actually will change these things? So it's, it's um, how can I say it? The, the idea of assessment of numbers, of rates, and so forth is not the important question here. The important question is, why are we seeing this as a problem and, um, and how to focus on it? So um, uh, part of what we were talking about in the article is something that has come out in other research that I've worked on as well, which is that we need to be looking at uh, key factors in the work environment that seem to be the ones, you know, when they when they go awry, they are predicting burnout, and is there some way to turn that around? And research that I've done um, with my colleague Michael Leiter, um, 
we've it, not just our own research, but just pulling together other research, we've identified at least six areas in which the mismatch or the misfit between people and the work environment are particularly important for burnout. And one is the one that everybody thinks of, which is workload, uh, that you've got, you know, the imbalance, the misfit is that there's way too much to do and not enough resources, not enough time, not enough tools, not enough other staff to get it done, you know, in, in a good way, uh, you know, and on time and so forth. But there are five other areas as well. Um, one has to do with how much control or discretion or choice one has about how you do your work. Do you spend more time with some patients than the other, or do are you limited? It must be only 13 minutes, no more, no less, you know, kind of thing. Um, so control, choice, et cetera. A third one is a lot about the, um, the reward, the positive feedback, recognition. It's not so much how much money you're getting or, or perks, it's whether anybody notices you've done something well and, and you know, pats you on the back and, and it, you know, recognizes that you, you, you thanks you or, you know, this kind of thing. So it's that recognition that turns out to be an important positive thing and in many of these occupations healthcare and others, um, they're almost designed not to give you positive feedback. You just, you know, a good day is when nothing bad happens and that's about it. Um, mm. uh, fourth area, which I think has been increasingly important in recent years is really what we're calling uh, the workplace community. And that's all about the social relationships between people and their colleagues, people they supervise, the patients, the, you know, uh, the managers, you know, uh, it's et cetera. Um, and are those uh, relationships one that are supportive, that you can work out differences, that you can resolve conflicts, that you can count on each other to help each other? Or is it one where you're really feeling, you know, people are ready to throw you under the bus. It's very uncivil. There's bullying. There's, you know, a lack of support. There's, as, as Anthony was saying earlier, a culture of fear where you don't want to speak up. You don't want ever say, ah, I'm a little stuck. I need some help or advice on how to handle this really difficult family situation here. You don't do it because that's going to make you mark you down, you think. Fifth one has to do with fairness and really whatever the rules are, whatever the policies, um, the practices, that uh, they're fairly administered. There's no glass ceilings. There's no discrimination. There's If we say something that we say is a value, we practice it and not just preach it. And then finally, um, uh, the sixth area has to do with meaning and values, which is like, you know, why am I here? What am I trying to do? It's not just about, you know, earning money. It's about doing some good. It's about really caring about people and their well-being. And I have a, I have a training and a way, and you know, to be able to do that. And am I being able to fulfill those kinds of, you know, values, goals, or am I being forced into things that I think are wrong or unethical or, you know, uh, really value conflict? Um, I have to say one thing, but not, not actually do it or, you know, put very difficult kind of things. And there again, mm -hmm. that can just kind of eat your heart out, you know, as people talk about, it's the erosion of my soul that is happening uh, here. So that's a sort of a long answer, but those six areas we have found are um, important things to focus on the person within the context and give us a, a pivot point to start looking at how do you make changes in some of those areas that would actually, you know, 
yield a more positive environment in which people can do their best and want to do their best. So that's a long one. And Tony, I'll take, turn it over to you. <laughs> okay, I, uh, Christine has elucidated very nicely um, the way in which, you know, if there is a kind of a misfit or a mismatch between the workplace and the person working there, how this can kind of contribute and drive burnout. I think what, what's going to be very nice now for your listeners, I'd just kind of like to put on top of that um, kind of two areas which I've written a lot about. And one is about the way that medical education, uh, the way it's presently structured, can contribute uh, to make sort of burnout more inevitable. I've actually written an article about the inevitability of burnout in healthcare professionals. And the idea here is that you can imagine if you, if you kind of stand back and look at it, you have individuals who start medical school, who are very scholastically capable, but actually the skills they will need as they start to develop to become healthcare professionals are ones which involve things like teamworking, communication, uh, patients, things like that. And what happens then is that they're in this environment where there's kind of a very strong culture of performance. And these kind of values, if you like, they are not ones which are most conducive to kind of seeking help or to engaging in a kind of shared kind of leadership. And then a lot of times we kind of move forward. A lot of these individuals who go to kind of medical school, they then find themselves in situations where they're junior doctors or medical residents. And now they're kind of being thrust into situations where they're expected to be leaders in a sense. And so there's a, there's a lot of weight put on them that they are there to take a leadership role in this particular situation or at least the individuals who are teaching them are kind of you know reflecting back values to them which suggests to them that you know they have to be strong and they have to be sure of themselves and they have to be confident and one of the points i make in my own writings about this is that in a sense all of these kind of trends all of these kind of um, all of these developments right from the time they start medical school are ones which are sort of are potentially going to make burnout more likely because they're ones which are going to make them less likely to kind of, you know, to seek help, to work in a team and to kind of share their concerns and to learn from their mistakes with people around them. So I think that um, the, the actual the medical career, the curriculum itself uh, is an area which we can look at in terms of looking at kind of burnout prevention. But obviously that's over much kind of longer term. If I could, if I could add one more thing there, um, just in general, is that, um, or sort of two things. One is that when going about any kind of change and at the level of an of a unit or a team or a group or whatever, it's really important that there is some two way communication. People can identify the pebbles in their shoe, the things that are really causing some problems, and gives you let's start here, or let's pick this area, or here's an issue that we're all, you know, annoyed with, and, and how can we change it? Um, but the other thing I want to say is, and on a more general level, is that the thing, one of the things that comes up over and over again in a lot of research uh, and beyond burnout as well, is when I ask people, you know, what would make a difference? What would really help? How often they will say, I wish... I had somebody that I could talk to about this, a safe place, a mentor, somebody who has experience, who would listen, who would help, who would not, you know, uh, publicize, uh, you know, treat it confidentially, uh, you know, and as a friend and an advisor. 
would not be, you know, making it public. Oh my gosh, so-and-so, you know, is having this kind of difficulty. And I hear about that from senior people, from junior people, from people in med school and training, from all levels. Uh, and the fact that we used to have more of that, but now for a number of reasons, the ability for people to develop those kind of relationships, to have time to do that kind of thing, which is helping each other out and particularly those, you know, um, who need, you know, a feeling like I'm starting and I need more guidance and help. So the thing about a mentor, uh, you know, and a safe place kind of thing is something that comes up in a lot of places. And how do we begin to make that possible and ask people for ideas and suggestions, try some things out as, as a possibility. But that's, a, but that's universal. I'm, I'm seeing that in many professions and not just healthcare. Yeah, just, sir, I was just going to add to that. I think what Christina just said links very nicely to the BMJ, the BMJ wellbeing group. It has its own campaign about uh, identifying uh, break areas for healthcare professionals, especially young ones. Um, and so this has emerged as an issue, um, it, you know, for the BMJ. I noticed that uh, young um, people starting a career in medicine in particular, they actually are working in healthcare organizations where they may not have a place they can all meet and discuss and talk and share some of the concerns they have. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, everything that you've been talking about here really goes to the core of the article that you've published recently on bmj.com, which is saying that, you know, burnout is a systemic problem. It's not necessarily to do with an individual's resilience. It's to do with the, the, the whole system within which they're working. But um, I think the focus so far on, on combating this has been about increasing individual resilience. Do you think that's actually had any effect? Has that had any benefit? Yes, I think that's that's true. And so, you know, and in general, you can say, well, anything that makes people healthier, uh, more confident, happier, you know, can help make you feel better, I think you can do it. Is it necessarily doing anything about the sources and the cause of burnout? Not necessarily. It's just helping you try to be, you know, deal with it better. But but the the stressors are still there. You know, it doesn't it doesn't change a toxic work environment. It's just saying buck up and do even more, you know, so that you can deal with it. Um, and at some point, um, you know, it's like the canary in the coal mine. I mean, when the canary goes down and is having trouble functioning uh, in the mine, it's not, oh my gosh, get that, let's get stronger, tougher canaries, you know, and make them more resilient so they can, they can take any environment, you know, no matter what the toxic fumes are. That's a sign that there's toxic fumes. There's something wrong in the environment. That has to be taken care of before you have miners go down in there. So... Um, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm anti-health, anti-resilience. I'm not, but it's just, it's not really addressing what's going on in the work environment, and that has to be a part of it. Yeah, it's just sticking a sticking plaster over. It's not treating the kind of underlying pathology, is it? Yeah, just to add to that as well, it's, um, I mean, it's, you know, as Christina quite nicely said, it, it has the problem of locating the problem very squarely in the person. The analogy she gave of the canary was really, really, really helpful. 
it also, I mean, the other side of it as well is that, if, you know, kind of focusing on the individual or reinforcing this notion that the canary, if you like, has to become stronger. It also helps the organization avoid difficult conversations about things like workload and staffing levels. So a lot of the time, maybe focusing on individuals can be kind of, for want of a better word, attractive for healthcare organizations. Uh, because it sort of plays the idea that there's, there's individuals in the organization who are intelligent, who are capable, and who are resourceful, and who can kind of, you know, can help fix themselves. And also it, it sort of prevents them maybe having to ask more, more complicated, more difficult, but more important questions about the drivers uh, pushing burnout. I mean, looking at it as a systems problem reminds me quite a lot of things like early quality improvement work when we started looking at at um, patient safety issues and, and moving from it, thinking about it as being individual mistakes and, and looking at it more as a kind of a, a, a systems problem. Now, part of that is to do with things like measurement and, and being able to actually take a, a broader look at what's going on, identify that there are patterns across across different places. And Christina, you've already said um, earlier on in this interview that you think measurement is um, is difficult and and might not be quite right. So I'm just wondering about this, this matching those two up. You know, how do, does a system, how does an organisation, you know, start to actually take this seriously and, and, and try and get a handle on it in a way that allows them to, to maybe make that first step in, in changing something? Uh, it's, a, it's a great question. And, uh, and I, I think people often are struggling with, you know, how do you begin? Um, I think that the, one of the things that I think is important to do is not simply to begin by saying, we are going to add another measure to our annual survey. Please fill it out. It's a very one-sided, one-way, top-down communication, which assumes I know that this is an important thing, but I haven't really checked it out with any of you to see if this is, is meaningful. Um, and it's really important to actually figure out how do we begin a dialogue, and not with like the whole organization, but in in the units, in the in the clinics, in the in the sort of more natural subunits of that, of the people working together in, in some way and begin to say, we really want to understand and figure out what are the, the kinds of things that are working well and what is not, and willing to try and see if we can figure out some initial small changes. Um, another thing I want to emphasize is that people tend to think it has to be huge, big, redesigning healthcare for the 21st century kind of thing. And no, it's small steps. It's the chronic stuff. It's, you know, uh, and you need to really begin there uh, and, and have those expectations clear. But if you aren't getting a two-way conversation from people at various levels uh, within the organization who are really becoming your partners here to kind of figure out what could we do differently? How could we get around it? Um, all of this tops-down stuff is not going to get much. The scores themselves don't have as much meaning if you don't have actual qualitative interviews and comments and you know suggestions that are are behind them, 
Um, I cannot tell you how many people I interview uh, and talk to in different organizations um, who are not at the top in the, in the C-suite, but, you know, elsewhere, who say, I can't stand it. I spent the first time they asked us questions about work engagement, and I thought, oh, wow, okay, let me, you know, answer the questions, and then you, you, you know, any suggestions, write it all out, da 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 You know, there was some enthusiasm the first time. But then next year, they get the same questions again, and they realize nobody read my first ones, or if they did, they didn't say anything. They didn't talk about it. They didn't say, ah, well, this is interesting, but we can't afford it, but here's something we might do, and let's you know, figure out what will happen. And then the next year, they ask again, and at this point, people are saying, either I don't answer it, or if they have this system to make sure that I answer it, I'm just... I'm making it up as I go along. I'm, you know, whatever. I'm just filling out the middle score. I'm, you know, so it's just leading to sort of more invalid garbage data, which is not doing you any good at all because you're not really measuring the most important thing. You're measuring a symptom, but you're not getting at why is it occurring. And it takes a different process to really say we are committed to making some changes and improving it. And how, what are, you know, let's, let's take some small steps and begin to figure out where we, where we might want to go. Um, and that kind of a mindset is really not the predominant one out there, um, but it makes a huge difference when the people who are being told you've got to do more with less are not getting any kind of response and say, okay, and how can we help make this happen? Anthony, if you had anything to uh, add in there. Yes. I do, yeah. And I think uh, just to kind of build on what Christina said, I think, you know, the whole idea of talking to people and consulting with them is critical to developing solutions, interventions, different ways of working. And I think also, I mean, we, we kind of, we, we do talk about this in the paper, the type of question you ask them itself can be very important. So in the paper, we make the point that if the question, for example, is, how do we improve quality of healthcare in this hospital? I mean, on the face of it, that seems like quite a nice open question. And it's, you know, focused on what should be important in any healthcare organization, quality. But even that question inside it is this idea that, you know, we, there's this thing called quality. And we as individuals all need to sort of, it, it's, it's that kind of, you know, the model again, we all need to work together to focus on this kind of abstract thing of quality. We need to, we need to go towards that. Whereas in the paper ourselves, we, we say, well, maybe we should ask a different question because even the question you ask people can be critical to the type of answers they give you and the engagement they have with what you're trying to do. So in the paper, we, we said we should change that question to what working conditions would need to change to make people want to work here and be fully engaged with their job. So I think you can see how, you know, in the first question, it's very much one gets the sense, oh, we just need to all work harder. We need to make the quality better. The patients need to be happier which is, of course, is a, a desirable thing. But in the second question, as we've phrased it, you can see that even the way we've, you phrase these questions can lead to completely different answers and diff different kind of relationships with people when you're trying to address things like burnout. Mm. Um, now, you might not be able to, to answer this as it's a, a kind of maybe a specific, quite nhs question, but... Um, if we take the NHS as a one of these systems um, in which, you know, people are, are experiencing burnout and it, it feels more like, you know, this problem is becoming more acute. Um, 
this is against the backdrop of there's a workforce crisis. There, there are a few people trying to do the amount of work at the same time as there is more work to do. There's less resources to do it. There are, um, there are just all these other sort of external pressures that are being brought to bear. And in the face of something like that, um, are there things that that organisations can do to actually, you know, help their staff, or? Or again, something that's so sort of fundamental, um, do you think that you have to get those basic, almost uh, hygiene factors in place before before you can start to address burnout? Yeah, I, I just, I'd like to reiterate what Christina said about, you know, sometimes it's about, it's not about this redesigning, as she, she put it very nicely, redesigning healthcare for the 21st century. Sometimes it's about kind of doing relatively small things. So to talk about the NHS, I mean, We've done a very nice, uh, we've done a very nice project in Manchester with general practitioners that I've been involved in, and so these were kind of postgraduate general practitioners, and what we found from talking to them that even though they actually worked in the same practice, they never actually, I mean, they were physically a couple of meters away from each other every day, but they rarely spent time to have a sandwich together, to have a cup of coffee together. So actually, when they would come together for their training day, it was like they were all meeting for the first time, even though they all actually worked together. So even something as simple as that, helping these individuals understand that a significant change in their work practices would be for, th- would be for them to think about how can they identify a period during the day when they can all sit around and discuss clinical problems, but also personal problems, and just share what's going on in their work, even a change like that um, can be quite powerful. If I can uh, sort of jump in with a, an example that exemplifies that, I was talking um, to a regional group of physicians uh, just recently. And one of the things when I meet with them, and I always ask, I said it would be really helpful, you know, what I could use as help is if you could let me know kinds of things you're trying and what's working, what's not. Uh, I want to hear both sides of it because I keep getting asked and I'd love to be able to have examples. So afterwards, people come up and say, okay, here's something we tried and it was a disaster, but I think we learned something or whatever. The one I want to mention is um, that a group uh, came up from a clinic and said, we've been trying something because we had this issue that we really never got together very often and, and talked with each other and so forth, just the issue that Anthony just mentioned. And they said, so we, we revised the huddle that we do the first thing in the morning. The huddle is when they all get together and say, okay, so what's our caseload today? What patients do we have? What do we need to be doing? Making sure you know, we're all prepared and know what's going on for the day. And they decided to then, um, you know, with one person saying, uh, you know, I have a really sick child. I haven't been able to get childcare for the whole day. So I, you know, is there any way I could leave early in the afternoon? And people said, oh, well, sure, we can do this and da 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 da, you know, and, and made, you know, um, arrangements for that. And after that, they started doing it every day. There's like a minute or two where they, check in with each other about how they're doing and is there anything we need to take into account. But then, how are you feeling? Uh, did you just see a great you know, film that you want to share with people? Or you know, any little thing like that. 
which they now call the cuddle huddle. And it only takes a couple extra minutes, but over months, um, the team was coming up to me, they were saying, I used to feel scared about talking, you know, to the higher ups on the team, I'm just the tech or I'm just the whatever, uh, you know, in my culture, we tend, you know, to be very deferential. We don't sort of speak up. I've learned how to do this. We now trust each other. We now know who we can go to. We know, you know, all kinds of things. And it's a great experience for us. And it's not redesigning healthcare for the 21st century. It is modifying um, a process they had to build in a greater recognition of how we need to support each other, uh, point out problems so that we can solve them and so forth. So the cuddle huddle is like, okay, it doesn't sound big and sexy, but it sure made a difference. Great, thank you. Yeah, can I just add one thing to that? Just uh, Sure. Because I, um, yeah, so, I mean, just in terms of also, so you can see, I think both the examples we gave were almost kind of, you know, there's an, they were informal, if you like, and then they became formalized by the people themselves. I mean, one idea that I'd like to, I'd like to see formalized or at least explored is a lot of the help that does exist for healthcare professionals in terms of emotional and social problems. I mean, things like Schwartz around, which are really excellent. We, I mean, one suggestion we'd like to see is how could we actually integrate, if you like, kind of resilience rounds or, you know, sort of personal and well-being rounds as a standard part of a clinical walk around. I mean, at the moment, in most hospitals in particular, clinical walk rounds are quite, it's quite a typical thing to do. And I don't, we, we can't say any reason why you couldn't also, using the cuddle huddle uh, idea that Christine just talked about, that you couldn't have sort of a re, kind of resilience round or a kind of a, you know, a personal and a kind of emotional round as actually a standard part of uh, training for healthcare professionals and for the development. And the, the important thing to sort of add here uh, in this is that uh, a lot of this is coming sort of ground up rather than top down. Uh, it's tried out by people, and if it doesn't work, they stop doing it. Uh, but it's also something that often happens, if, if I can say this uh, clearly enough, it's sort of happening under the C-suite radar. In other words, they don't have to wait for the you know, the top management to say, do something or do this. They don't need to go ask for money. They don't need to, all of that kind of thing. They've got, it turns out, a lot more choice and discretion about how they carry this out. And once they realize that there are things that they might be able, you know, to a sense, change, modify, improve, that's sort of within their, their designated scope, um, and you you give them um, you know I mean they can do they can do that and then to give them recognition when it's going well passing it on to others as something to try um, is just is just a great thing so there's lots of examples I think of that sort of utilizing the the experience and the creativity of the people doing the work and giving them you know and applauding the fact that they can do it on their own rather than having to wait for somebody else to say, we are going to invest money in, you know, whatever. Mm. So the, everything that you've, you mentioned there, you mentioned, you know, how to, to connect people to create that sort of, or enhance that sort of social element to, to people's jobs. A little bit about um, 
increasing people's autonomy, allowing them to take back some control of, of how they do their work and what they do. Um, these are all things that you mentioned, Christina, at the beginning as the six factors which uh, can, can lead to burnout. So are these factors not only um, potentially causative, but they're also, if they're enhanced, they're potentially protective and that might give uh, organizations some ideas about ways in which this could be tackled uh yeah no i think you're right and you know in uh, in our bmj article i think you know that's our i think our fourth one is uh talking about focus on development of healthy workplaces and basically uh the idea there is and we talk about those you know briefly those six areas but that kind of thing that if we can find and, and, and develop, you know, many little ways in which we create, you know, a better sense of community, uh, more recognition for things that people do incredibly well, more fairness in how we handle, you know, these kind of things, this is all going to be one of the many parts of developing a place of a healthy workplace, which is in a sense, a place that, that really is better designed to help people develop, grow, thrive, do their best, be motivated and all that kind of thing. And so, um, I, you know, yeah, I think this is a, a really important direction to go. Um, I don't want to say these six things are the only ones. I, you know, I, I suspect we can find more, but, but we certainly know what these uh, as a way to go. And uh, in fact, what I'm doing right now is I'm part of a interdisciplinary group at UC Berkeley um, uh, called, uh, you know, an interdisciplinary center on healthy workplaces. And we're trying to bring all kinds of people together from architects to psychologists to, you know, engineers to, you know, designers, et cetera, to sort of say, if you're thinking about improving, changing, building, you know, uh, new workplaces, what kind of things actually, you know, enhance human beings ability to do well and, um, and feel good about the work that they're doing. You've been listening to Anthony Montgomery and Christina Maslach talk about burnout. Their analysis, Burnout in Healthcare, the case for organizational change is now available on bmj.com. I'll add a link to the podcast text as always. Now, if you're particularly interested in or worried about burnout in your own career or in those around you or as a manager, if perhaps that's your role, then you might be interested in BMJ Live. It's a careers fair with lots of talks about these kind of issues. And it's happening in London on the 4th and 5th of October at London Olympia. It's a free event open to all grades, all specialties, and it gives you an opportunity to attend over 40 free career seminars, receive some one-to-one professional careers advice. You can even bring along your CV and get it checked out there and then perhaps take it to the network of over 50 recruiting organisations from around the world. So if that's of interest to you, all the details are at live.bmj.com. That's it for this podcast, but we'll be back very soon with another one of our talk evidence. So make sure you've subscribed so you don't miss out on that. Until then, I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening. <laughs>